Hi, I'm Michael, founder of Quinn, and this is The Winwire, where we hear stories from industry leaders about their transformative career moments, including deals that shaped entire companies. Today, I'm excited to welcome Judy Hand. Her journey from observing her mother's entrepreneurial spirit to becoming chief revenue officer at T-Tech is truly inspirational. Judy started her career at US West, working for almost two decades across sales and marketing, and applying her comprehensive experience to transform the company's messaging, results, and culture. Her journey then took her to AT&T, where she managed a $7 billion business, and now to T-Tech, a public customer experience company where she serves as CRO. Judy shared a few of her pivotal career stories with us. First, how she led a big transformation at US West, and second, how she incubated a new business after starting at T-Tech. Whether you're an aspiring leader, a seasoned executive, or simply someone who appreciates a remarkable success story, you won't want to miss the wisdom Judy brought to today's episode. Let's dive in. Judy, welcome to the podcast. Uh, nice to be here. So excited to talk to you. Of course. Yeah, look, I, I heard you on a previous podcast before talking about your personal life and your journey in business. And I just thought um, this is a really thoughtful leader, someone who's really deliberate. Everyone deserves to hear more of them. You, know, you have a really interesting way you've navigated your career, especially in terms of leveling yourself up with new experiences. But as always, we are here primarily to talk about um, some of those memorable deals or wins in your career. I know you have two kind of distinct experiences or, or wins that you wanted to talk about today. So I think, you know, a helpful place to start would be telling us where does it all start? Who are you in this story? What's your journey up to this point? Great. I sure will do that. So this is a company that I started with right out of, uh, right out of undergraduate school. And I very deliberately throughout my career with this company wanted to take on the responsibilities of each individual element of ultimately what I thought was my career aspiration. So I felt very strongly that I, to be a, to be a good leader, I needed to be a practitioner, not just a presider over functions. So I literally spent years volunteering and being given the opportunity to go in and run each individual function within a given business. So that when I said to somebody on my marketing team, I need this product launched by October 15th, I knew what I was asking of them because I had had to tr do that myself. And so I felt like that, you know, that gave me not only credibility and respect, but made me kind of part of the team. So, so spent you know, years with this company, walked away for a couple of years to go to graduate school, came back to the company. And I was given the opportunity to run a division of the business. And this is one of the baby bells, as they were called, the spinoffs of AT&T when it was broken up in the 80s. And this was a company at the time it was called US West. It's changed its name to Quest, CenturyLink. Now I think it's called Lumen. But the division was the small business division. And this was the division that was responsible for, I think at the time, it was like 6 million small businesses in 14 states in the country. And this was, I think, 2000, right around 2000. There was so much competition that had been introduced in the mid-90s into the space that this division had just gotten used to losing market share. And every year, they would get a business plan that said, okay, this year we're going to hold our market share loss to 7%. So like, okay, are there things we can do to make that a market share loss of 6%? But, you know, when I came in, I realized we were really comfortable living in the brackets. And that's what I, the way I described this to the team is, guys, there's still brackets around these numbers. 
we don't want to be that business. We want to be on the offense. We want to gain market share. We don't want to be okay losing market share. So we're going to take the time and we're really going to study how to be different. Now, now we are the only option for these businesses. So how are we going to be different? How are we together going to be different? And we decided to use the very nature of a small business customer. Small businesses are the lifeblood of our, of our country. Small businesses are people who are there to build a life and an economic cushion for their families. We're going to play off of that. And they do that by building a business around things that they feel very passionate about, that they, they feel like they're very much experts in, and they want nothing more than to, than to deliver that expertise, whether it be a florist, it could be a baker, it could be a lawyer, it could be a dentist, right? They feel very strongly about their profession. And the things that get in their way of being able to spend all of their time are just the things that are required to run a business. And one of the things required to run a business are your communication systems. And so how about if we take that off their hands? How about if we be their expert and let them spend their time focused on what they need to focus on? But do that in a way where we understand that that checkbook that they're using, it's the same checkbook that they were using to buy the bicycle for their child for their 12th birthday. So just we have to just really absorb all of that, internalize all of that, and be their hero. And so we built an entire strategy around this. We got an entire organization, you know, very purposefully driven to this. And from that uh, year on, we were gaining share. We weren't losing share. And when we were successful, it was an entire organization that was successful. It was not one or two people who were building the right strategy. It was an entire organization. And it was probably, as I reflect on my career, I was certainly proud, but more than that, because I came from a small business background, I just, I felt like the effort was so worth it. It was just so worth all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into your job on a daily basis because it, it felt more, it felt like it was more than just helping a share price uh, go up. And so I love, I, I reflect on that all the time. It was a wonderful time in my career. Well, I'm interested because of course, you know, in the, for the sake of time, you're summarizing it very quickly. It sounds really easy when you're in a business to say, well, why don't we just start gaining share? But it is risky to kind of introduce a net new strategy into the organization, say we shouldn't accept the status quo, especially as someone who'd worked there for a while, um, who had seen it inside and out. How did that, um, you know, how did other folks respond to that internally? Why was it something that was so much friction before that that you had to introduce anything? I have to kind of think back to the days, but here's what I'd say is, you know, I, I often describe bad results as the mirror we refuse to look at. And so the very first step you have to take is really acknowledge why you're losing share. Start there. Why, why are we losing? And, and a lot of why we're losing is self-inflicted. So let's, let's just all acknowledge as, you know, why we're losing. And realize that the, the place to start is from the outside in. What is it that we know about these customers that nobody else knows? We, if we know these customers better than anybody, and we can, as a result of that, we can act on those customers' needs better than anybody, we will win. 
it, it was easy to get the organization to say, you know what, it kind of stinks to celebrate negative 6% because the plan was negative 7 And I often, you know, tell people, you know, the, the plan is a bit of a problem because the plan is self-fulfilling. So, you know, you don't want to really look at the plan we, we committed to, look at the actual results themselves, you know, and are those results we can be proud of? So everybody wanted those brackets to go away. Like we celebrated the, the, the first month the brackets went away and we were gaining share, not losing share. And I think the share we gained was less than 1%, but there were no brackets any longer. And it kind of became the bracket busting cry, right? And so, but the way we did it was abundantly interesting to people, which was, let's go out there and make sure we understand these customers better than anybody, and then we will act on that understanding. I think that is just something everybody can get behind. Yeah. Well, I, I think it is funny also with this kind of plan is, this has been parodied across sitcoms. I don't know if you've watched Abbott Elementary or Parks and Recreation, anything like that, yeah. where people generally lampoon someone who comes in and says, we need to change things. And everyone else basically says, look, this person is the yet another person in a long line of people who have tried this and are going to fail. And I don't think it really resonates until there's a specific plan in place, right? I would be curious if there's any memories you have around how you kind of turn that into a reality, whether it's the frontline teams that actually had to ex execute it. Yeah, so it's interesting that you bring up those sitcoms because I absolutely agree that the worst thing a new leader can do is come in and say, throw the clowns out. That people do not want to make bad decisions. People do not want to be unsuccessful. And for you to come in and think that you're going to be the hero, you're going to be the savior, is just the absolute wrong way to go. And it's not in, in my nature anyway. And so, you know, what I did in the first probably couple of months that I was there is I just listened to people, listen to people who were there, get all the way down to the front line. I think I had something like 6,000 frontline associates who are the people that our small businesses were talking to, whether to buy something, to pay a bill, to get something installed, to get something repaired. Really listen to them because that's ground zero. Those are the people that hear every single day what's on the minds of our customers. And I spent a lot of time in the middle of those groups just absorbing and listening to them. And then the other thing I did, which I, I decided that the best way to do this is not through my voice, but through the voice of small businesses themselves. So what I did is I went out and I found a number of representative small business owners and I brought them in and we created videos, which actually en ended up being an ad campaign where we, and I said, this is a, so funny, I started with my bug man, and that's what I called him. I, I lived in Arizona at the time, and uh, your bug man is very important person because you have bugs 12 months out of the year, and they can be really big. And so you find a bug man, and that bug man comes once a month, and that bug man makes sure that you don't wake up with uh, some bug on your face, right? And my bug man, his name was Marty. He had a passion for bugs, and my husband and I used to do rock, paper, scissors, on who would be there the day Marty came to spray the house because he wanted to educate us on like the mating habits of cockroaches. Like he so was so passionate about his business. So I brought Marty in as the very first one and said, I want you to talk to this group about why you do what you do. And, and, and then I brought in a florist and I brought in a printer and I brought in a guy who owned a bike repair shop. And I, and 
and you just, you hear these people and you're like, I want to help you. Like, I really want to help you. And so I said the very best way to get all of us corralled around this vision and therefore the strategy is to do it from the customer's voice uh, and really have people want to help Marty. It's not to help Judy. They want to help Marty. Marty the Bugman. I haven't said that name in years. <laughs> no, it's great. And I think, I mean, you you bring up two really interesting, related, but different points, which is number one, the notion of learning from the front lines, learning from the customer themselves. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, if you become a leader, you do get farther away. And so how do you become someone or how do you create an organization that's actually able to funnel that information up, those anecdotes? And then number two, that notion of who are we actually doing this for? Does this really matter? Is this a replacement level job? Maybe is the way to put it. We're more remote now, uh, certainly than before. We don't really hear those things now. So I don't know. You kind of actually need that perspective on a regular basis that there's actually someone on the other side. Yep. Having heard about Judy's groundbreaking achievements at US West, I wanted to turn to another defining moment of her career. This next story centers on an enterprise deal that epitomized Judy's approach to business thinking from first principles, and truly understanding the customer's needs. And it helped her incubate a new business at T-Tech. Let's listen to Judy as she outlines her journey to this pivotal role and shares details of this transformative deal. Yeah, so when I came to the company I'm with now, I came in to run a division that had been purchased a year earlier. And this division was going through some real challenges because this particular company had been started to be a, a direct sales arm for major um, technology companies. So think IBM, Lenovo, Sony, Toshiba, those major companies. And it was actually started to compete with Dell, who did a brilliant thing in the mid-90s, and they disintermediated retailers and, and uh, distributors and said, you business can buy what you need from a desktop, laptop, hardware, software, directly from a catalog, directly from an 800 number, directly from a website, and cut out all those middlemen. And so this company was created to replicate that. So I tell you the story because when I came in in 2007 to run this business, that industry, uh, gross margins were dropping. So this company was declining in, the, in what they were in the market to do. So my job was to step back and look at what are our core capabilities? What do we know how to do? Well, one of the things we knew how to do was what I call professional inside sales, is figure out how to, to work with businesses without being face-to-face -face with them and sell them what they need. And so I went, so, so I started to think about what types of industries have the need to serve this. Again, it was primarily the kind of SM, lower enterprise, highly fragmented market space. What kind of companies are out there trying to serve them? I want to go and talk to those companies. And so I ended up um, one of the very large global companies that's, uh, that happens to be headquartered in Silicon Valley. Uh, the founders are two people I happen to be in graduate school with in a specific class. And so while I didn't know them well, I knew enough to reach out to them. And I reached out and said, hey, I've started this new job. I'd love to come and talk to you or somebody on your team about how we could help you. So they got and this me is you right doing people. this as a leader, right? I mean, you're not like a frontline, yeah. okay. you know, you're saying, I'm going to take this upon myself here. Yeah. And and by the way, I, I learned that from our vice chairman of our company who asked me one day as the president GM of this division, Judy, what do you think your job is? And I think I gave him some incredibly academic 
answer about my job is to set the strategy and to set the priorities and to align the resources to those priorities. And he said, Judy, your job is to make it rain. Like, okay, my job is to make it rain. So, you know, the best way to do that is to be the one out there selling and really, and, and, and again, once again, hearing, does this value proposition resonate across industries? And so what I like about this story is there was no known there's no was no real known need by this company. They just knew that they were getting outcomes that weren't what they wanted. And so all they could articulate to me in, in this first meeting was, here's what we're doing, and here's what we're getting, and we're guessing it's not good enough. Which, by the way, they were probably hitting their business plan numbers. But they were, I think, you know, kind of very forward thinking enough to realize, but it probably could be a lot better. And so I brought my team in to really go to school on what are they doing? How are they doing it? What, you know, what, why are they getting the results that they're getting? And we came back with an incredibly innovative, here's a completely different way to do this. And what they agreed to is let's start with a pilot. Let's together build a pilot that is absolutely like a big laboratory and test out this theory of a totally different way to sell this service and not just sell it, but ensure that the customers retain the service because the service ended up, there's no contracts. And so you could cancel it at any time. And they were getting huge cancellation rates because people, again, this was small businesses who are trying to buy something they knew nothing about. So we knew we had to come up with a completely different uh, strategy and implement it. And we did. And this was in 2008, I think it was. And so now fast forward to 2023, we are the largest inside sales team for this company worldwide. So we took, the, we started this in the US, kind of perfected the formula. And now we do it all over the world um, for this company. And it was just, it was great because it literally started from nothing. And what I tell my salespeople is my, my very, my most valuable salespeople are originators. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to respond to somebody's very well articulated known need. That's, that's great. That means you manage the sales process well, means you manage you know, your internal resources well, all that, and, and you meet the needs of the customer and you, and you beat the competitors. But where you actually originate the opportunity before it was even understood by the client. There's magic in that. And that is, I think, just a really good example of an origination uh, story that I love to tell my guys here because I keep saying, let's find more of those. I want more of those. Well, don't you think that's kind of hard? I mean, one of the challenges I think most people face right now is one of focus. It's probably always been a problem, um, but it certainly feels like it's ramping up. Uh, with a lot of distractions. And it goes without saying that it's a lot easier and less time consuming to respond to someone who says, you know, calls you up and says, hey, I want whatever you're selling right now. What you're talking about is actually something very distinct where it requires a lot of research. It requires a lot of perspective, um, intelligence, uh, some might say, to go do this. And there's a certain likelihood that it'll fail. So how do you kind of think about balancing those of generating net new things that, you know, aren't known? That is such a great question. Uh, I feel like you've been sitting in my meetings. So here's what I'd say to you is the, the first type of opportunity you described, known needs, customer has done their own research. 
they've landed at your business because you're one of uh, one of the viable options to solve their need. That I call that the engine room. That has to keep going. You have to always be responding to those known needs, always, and you have to make sure. And maybe ninety percent of the, your business is responding to those known needs. But if you're not taking some small percentage of your business and doing what I just described, then at some point in time, that is going to run out and or become very commoditized. Because the more and more people can say, here's exactly what I need, and everybody can can act on that need, the more you have many options in front of you, not just one, right? And so what we have to balance is keep that engine room going, win your fair share of known needs. But if we are trying to originate the next set of needs, believe me, what I just described to you, we have replicated over and over again. And if we can't replicate it over and over again, you're right. No business can survive off of building bespoke solutions for every single company. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So I knew that we had the building blocks to take this and replicate it many times over um, instead of just doing it once. But I couldn't do that if the engine room wasn't running. Um, and I do think that you are right. You can't ask people to, you know, be burning the candle at both ends forever. But when something this interesting and exciting came along, I remember us being in a conference room for days on end with brown paper, you know, on the walls where we were, we were creating, you know, it was like a design session. We were creating this. And we were feeding off of each other because there is something about being asked to, from the bottoms up, create something from whole cloth that is really, really interesting than to just respond to the known, you know, rote, you know, oh, it's this proposal again. Because everybody asks us the same question around disaster recovery or our ESG initiatives or whatever, right? And you gotta you gotta deliver the mail, as I tell the guys. You gotta answer the mail and deliver it. But there are times when you're actually being asked to step back and be creative. That is that is just you know I think it just gets people's juices going. It gets them really excited. But you can't do that at all times because burnout is very real, and we're seeing it uh, a lot. After hearing Judy's stories of changing cultures and starting new businesses, I wanted to get her perspective on something important to me. When we last talked, she mentioned something interesting, which resonated a lot with what we're doing at Cowin and The Windwire. She said that in her interviews, she asked candidates to tell one deal story that sticks out to them. So I wanted to ask her why and what she was looking for so that we could all learn a thing or two. You know, I think at the end of the day, you've got to be interesting <laughs> to people. And, you know, especially in sales, you... I always tell people this is a two-way street. You you are asking for somebody's time and they're giving you their time and you need to make it valuable to them. And what's what's what makes it valuable to them is if you can listen to 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 their stories and then reflect on them with your own stories where they can walk away thinking I just learned something. I just learned something about how to think about, you know, my responsibility differently or my challenges differently or whatever and and it just is the way in which our brains work for us to think in, in, in story-like fashion. I mean, the whole notion of death by PowerPoint, 
is real. And I was just on a call yesterday because we have a client advisory board meeting coming up. And and I said to the team, ask these slides and just put a picture up. Like just put a, like it, it happened to be around generative, generative AI and how that is helping so much with, you know, we no longer have to just get endless search results. We actually get the answer because of how powerful this tool is. And I said, so just put a garbage truck up on the screen. Most knowledge bases are just garbage dumps. Just, all you have to do, take all these words off. Just put a garbage truck up and just tell a story. Tell a story of, you know, the frustration you've had in trying to get an answer to a question and typing it into a search bar and getting 1,952 answers to your question, right? So, and, and then show, and here's how that has changed. Now, the fact that you accidentally threw away your diamond wedding ring in the garbage and you're never going to find it in that truck, now all of a sudden you find your diamond wedding ring. Like, tell it in a story because that's what's interesting to people. And then they immediately think of their own story. And now you've created this, cop this, this common understanding that'll take you to the next step of your conversation. So I just think this is the way we are. And when I ask people in interviews, what story do you like to tell? I, I understand how they communicate. I understand what they value. I understand, you know, their process. I can catch all of that just in a story. Yeah. I, I think the, the way we sometimes articulate that is like, are, are they consciously competent as well? Are they, yeah. have they been sleepwalking through whatever it is they've been doing? They might have actually had success. It's not necessarily even sussing yeah. that out yeah. per se, but is, will they be able to replicate? Because are they a person who actually understands what they've done? in a really genuine way. Yeah. And just, you can pick out the pronouns they use in stories. Like, is it about me? Is it about we? Is it about I? You know, it's like standing at a cocktail hour and, you know, meeting somebody for the first time and how do they choose to tell you about themselves in that five-minute period? As the CRO of a public company, Judy has a lot of career options. So I was curious what led her to T-Tech, a company that fascinates me because behind the scenes, their employees are staffing the contact centers of some of the biggest companies in the world and influencing our daily interactions without us even realizing. So I wanted to get her perspective on what keeps her engaged. Here's Judy. In, in this industry that I'm in now, we represent every industry, every geography, every customer segment. So it's endlessly interesting. So there are days when I'm dealing with the largest healthcare providers in the world days I'm dealing with the largest insurance carriers or the largest uh, telcos or the largest social media company. And each one of these companies carries with it their own challenges, their own opportunities, their own cultures, their own leadership styles. Um, and so I feel like every day I'm back in school and it's now a new case study, like really trying to understand this company and why they're doing what they're doing. And the very best way to understand these companies is we have 65,000 people who talk to their customers all day long, all day long, and, and talk to them, chat with them, respond to their emails, you know, what have you, right? And so it just really helps you understand, again, from the outside in, what fuels our, our, our industries and what fuels our economy and customer experience is something we can all relate to because we all have that story of the worst experience, right? I mean, I like to tell it over and over again. What I uh, 
I'll often tell our clients is our or our um, employees only remember they work for us twice a month. And that's the way it should be. When they get their paycheck, they see the name of our company. But for the rest of the month, they're working for whoever it is that we're representing. We should be, you know, a company nobody knows, if you will, because we represent the largest brands in the world. And that's what we do. And it's really so. So it's just endlessly interesting is the way I would describe it. And to me, that's uh, that's important is for me to be boredom scares me to death. Well, um, just as a final question, we always love to ask our guests about one or two or even a few mentors or peers that have had the most impact on you throughout your career or even on a personal level. And what have they given to you? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, it was my mother who ran a business, you know, when when women didn't run businesses in the 60s and 70s. And she taught me to be your authentic self, period. End of story. If you are who you are and bring that person into your work life. And she was, um, she treated her employees as family and they, um, and I think it was much more rewarding for her. It drove success. And that was the very first person that, um, that I just watched from and realized that that's possible. So can't say enough about that. Um, and then I had a, a gentleman, uh, my, my boss at AT&T, this six foot five ex-marine like and he had the most he has the most booming voice like i called it a surround sound voice when he talked like the walls shook and he was the most but he had seven daughters and he was the most kind like he held you accountable big time but he was the most encouraging the most kind boss and he i think is the person that said to me uh judy think like your replacement and I, to this day, tell people that all the time because we all get complacent if we've been in a job for a long time. We think we have the answers. And oftentimes we defend our prior decisions because our fingerprints are on those decisions. So they must have been the right decision. And we don't step back and accept that the circumstances may have changed. And yet when somebody new comes into the job, they ask questions uh, for if, if they're if they are doing what you should be doing, they start by asking a lot of questions. Why do we ever stop asking ourselves those questions? And that's and that's what he taught me. And I I literally use that constantly and remind myself all the time, am I have I stopped asking myself questions on, is this still the right thing to do? Are we still thinking about this the right way? So he was um he was just an absolutely amazing, amazing business leader and an amazing mentor to me. And he he gave me confidence. And that's the other thing I realized is, kind of realized this both in raising my children as well as in raising my people that I work get to work with is, you know, find ways to give people confidence. The amount of results and just success people can have when you find ways to give them confidence in their own abilities is astounding and so i think that's you know what he taught me and just just absolutely couldn't thank him enough for what he gave me well it's a funny way to frame it because i think some people might see those two almost in a balance of um high level of confidence and sort of self-questioning and self-doubt and those are a beautiful balance so you know you've articulated them in two different ways but actually i think those two are both necessary 
Well, to me, to me, you only can ask questions if you are confident, right? So if you think about it, right, the the way I can feel very good about questioning my own ability is because I'm confident that I'll figure it out. Yeah, no, it's it's genuinely something I'm going to take into the future as well around think like your replacement, because I do think we do need to be questioning that. And there is so much inertia that runs on a daily basis. You'd rather not ask that question. Um, yeah. But no, well, thank you so much, Judy. I had a blast doing this and I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, as always, for joining us on another episode of The Windwire. We'd appreciate it if you could share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Helps others discover the show and join our growing community. Our contact info is in the show notes, including our show email. You can see all episodes at thewindwire.com and then your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.